come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 42 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., here recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, it is going to be Journey Through the Aughts number 16, when I have featured reviews of The Hunt that is from here in 2020 and Peeping Tom from 1960. I know I brought that title up a few times, finally got around to seeing it and doing a review here on the show. And then going along with that, I have some mini reviews of three films that are actually part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s of One Hour Photo, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which ended out 2000 for me, as well as May. And I will get into those in that mini review section here shortly. But aside from that... I did get to take advantage that the movie theaters here have opened back up. There have some limited showings, but I did see a classic of the Goonies finally. I did go see a movie in the theater that will be featured on my next episode, and that one I will get into, you know, in the outro for this show. And then on top of that, I did also watch another movie that is going to be featured on a side quest episode, so... That, again, will be, you know, out here in the next week or so, so stay tuned for that. But aside from, you know, everything I just said there, I'm going to get you over to a musical break, and I hope you enjoy the show and coming on this journey with me.
Welcome back. And for my first mini review is going to be for One Hour Photo from 2002. This is written and directed by Mark Romanek. This stars Robin Williams, Connie Nielsen, and Michael Vartan. This is a drama thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a mentally unstable photo developer targets a middle-class family after his obsession with them becomes more sick and disturbing than any of them could imagine. Now this is a movie that I remember my sister having on DVD as she is a fan of Robin Williams. It was interesting though is that I never watched it when she first got it but I randomly did check this out when I was visiting from college and thought that it was really good. I had not seen it since then and it wasn't until the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series for the 2000s that I decided to give it another viewing as part of that just so I could watch all the films that were selected. And then just give it a little bit more is that Robin Williams plays Seymour Parrish but he goes by the nickname of Cy. And he works at a place called Save Mart, which is one of those like large department stores. And he's like the top guy in the photo developing lab there, which is an interesting idea is that younger film fans might not really understand the significance of this film and what it was like to, you know, get take pictures and then go into a you know place like this to get it developed and how you had to wait for it to, you know, be done and everything like that. Because like our phones all now have cameras and everything like that. But Sai is a pretty bland guy. He has really short blonde hair and we mostly see him in his work attire that is very neutral. His house is a bunch of beige, browns, and whites to go along with this. There is really something odd about him though is that he has a large wall full of pictures of another family. Now this family is regular customers at his store of the Yorkins. The wife is Nina and she's portrayed by Connie Nielsen and she frequents the store with her son Jacob who is Dylan Smith. Now he has been keeping pictures of them since this young couple got married. Um, her husband is Will who is portrayed by Michael Varton. But he's been keeping these prints of them like he would every time he fills out their order sheet is he'll keep an extra set for himself. And then we get an interesting scene here of Nina and Will as they're getting into an argument about him working a lot and how he's ne neglectful from it. Now things all take a turn though when Cy draws the attention of his boss who is Bill Owens portrayed by Gary Cole. He gets into it with a technician of, over the photo printer and how he doesn't think it's calibrated exactly right. So this causes Bill to start looking into his work and he finds some, um, you know, things that he could possibly fire him over. And then there's also something here where this young woman of Maya Burson, who's portrayed by Aaron Daniels, brings in a role of film for Prince. He recognizes her but not sure how. And then he's trying his hardest to incorporate himself into the Yorkins by stalking them. And then he ends up discovering some deeper, darker issues here. And then we also reveal some things about his own past that is causing him to, you know, be as he is. Now, I do have to say that one of the first things that I really enjoy about this film is the character of Seymour. I feel bad for him because he's really awkward, but he's really just, you know, wants to fit in somewhere. And he's fascinated by pictures and what they represent, you know, with history and, uh, you know, being a time in somebody's life. But there's also a darker aspect to this with him, and it is something that gets revealed later in the end when he's being questioned by a detective, Vander Zee, who is portrayed by Eric LaSalle. What I also like here, though, is that he doesn't realize what he's doing is wrong, which makes it even worse. He's observant for one thing, and he kind of does some of this stuff to incorporate with his family, is that he sees a book that Nina is buying, and he decides to read it. He remembers a toy that Jacob wants, so he gets it for him. And he has all these pictures from when Nina and Will first moved to the area. Since they've been coming in so regularly, he's been watching them grow. And that almost is why he kind of feels like he's part of the family and is injecting himself into their lives, which isn't normal as well.
But there's also this idea of not truly knowing someone even if you're married to them. Will is harboring secrets from Nina, who is a beautiful woman. They have a great kid together, and it seems like a perfect life, but he still isn't happy. I also like the idea that Sai thinks of them as a perfect family, but part of this is a facade. It is clear that something that happens to him makes him snap to do the things that he does, but there's just something I really dig about how we really don't know what goes on behind closed doors as opposed to the images that we get and that they are projecting. I do think this movie has some conveniences. There's a moment where Jacob tells his mother that he's worried about Sai. I don't buy that a child, no matter how much of a saint their parents think they are, would ask this type of question and worry about it. And then there's also another thing here where I don't feel like the cops would have been able to do some of the things that they did without an actual warrant. Now, it would bog down things, so I get it's kind of movie logic there. I do want to shift over to how this movie was shot, and I do have to give credit here to Carly on the Summer Challenge series episode. And you can listen to her on a lot of things like His and Hers podcast, as well as like Netflix and Chill. But this movie brings up some really good things with aesthetic here, and she was dead on with what she says. Everything about Sai is bland, from his look to his house and even his personality. The duality is that the Yorkin's house is very warm, comforting, and has color to it. He wants that. It doesn't matter the lengths he'll go to get it, though, either. Aside from that, I think the cinematography is solid. As there really isn't much in the way of effects in themselves, as this is more of a psychological film. The last thing I really wanted to kind of go over here would be the acting. Williams is absolutely amazing in this. And I heard some trivia about him overhearing someone say that they were lost in his performance and then forgot that it was Robin Williams. It is a shame that he's no longer with us because this movie showed of how good of an actor he really is and him becoming this character. Nielsen is another solid actress and I liked her portrayal as this woman. She does some things that I hate, but I can see someone in her position doing them. Barton is a scumbag, but he plays it well. Smith is fine as the child, and it is fun to see Cole in this as he's pretty much playing a similar role to what he did in Office Space. Uh, Daniels is also fine, and we get to see her nude, so there's that. I would say that the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So I can see this you know, being more of a fringe horror-type film. It really has an interesting story and just how everything kind of moves, and the performance by Williams really drives this movie as well. I like the aesthetic that it's going for, as there's a lot of whitewash, which is interesting as... You know, working in film that if things get overexposed, they can, you know, be white like we get in some of the, like the room that he's being interrogated in. So, like I said, I don't think this is a great film. I do think that it's above average, though, just bordering on being really good. So I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 here. And for my second review of this week is going to be Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. This came out in 2000. This is directed by Joe Berlinger, who also co-wrote this with Dick Beebe. And then it comes from characters from Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. This stars Jeffrey Donovan, Stephen Baker, Turner, and Erica Learshin. This is an adventure fantasy horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a 1.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a group of tourists arrives in Burkittsville, Maryland after seeing the Blair Witch Project to explore the mythology and phenomenon only to come face-to-face with their own neuroses and possibly the witch herself. Now, to start this off, my sister and I got this DVD pretty early into it coming out. We both really liked The Blair Witch Project, and when we heard that there was a sequel, we were excited. We both liked it for different reasons from the original. Now, I've seen this a handful of times throughout the years, and I could see that it falls short of the original, but it has some interesting aspects for sure. Now, just to give it a little bit more backstory, is that we get some different television programs giving a feel of how the impact the original had on society. Now, this film is establishing that the mythology of the Blair Witch is real, or at least people think that it is, and they're trying to find proof, but then this also admits that the original was just a film. 
We also see that Burkittsville has been become like a tourist attraction, and the residents, despite wanting to not have capitalized on this, and we meet one such resident who is Jeffrey Patterson, portrayed by Jeffrey Donovan, and he is doing his inaugural tour of the Blair Witch Hunt that he'll take people out into the woods. But it's kind of funny is that his website is a bit misleading as it sounds like he's done many tours, but that means he has actually serviced many people who have bought products from him. Now, his group that he's taken out there is made up of Stephen Ryan Parker, who is actually, who is portrayed by Stephen Baker Turner. And then his girlfriend is Tristan Ryler, who is portrayed by Tristan Schuyler. And then also is Erica Gearson, who is Erica Learson in real life. And then... As I was saying, Stephen and Tristan are a couple, and they're writing a book about the Blair Witch and whether it's history or hysteria. Now, she is also pregnant, which we do learn a little bit later on, but we do know that she doesn't want to keep the baby where Stephen does. And then Erica is a witch of the Wiccan faith and wants the Blair Witch to guide her. Now, they stop off at a cemetery to pick up the last member, who is a gothic woman named Kim Diamond, who is portrayed by Kim Director. Now, we do learn that through subtle things that she might have a touch of psychic ability, and then they go out to the woods, and it is there they set up in the ruins of Rustin Parr's house. And the first thing that they really notice here, at least Jeff does, is that there's a giant tree in the middle of it, which wouldn't make sense since the house was built in the 1800s. So this tree is much older than that, so it would have been built around it, but nobody besides Jeff finds this to be odd. Now the group ends up partying, and they're interrupted by another tour group, and they end up subtly trying to say that there was something that happened at Coffin Rock to get them to go away. But when they wake up the next morning, all of the cameras are smashed and all of the work that Tristan and Steven has done has been destroyed. They all decide to go back to Jeff's house to see if they can piece things together as they find the tapes. But what's eerie is that they find them where the Blair Witch Project tapes were found. And Kim is the one that states that they're in there and she's trying to say it's her psychic ability. And then on top of this, Tristan had a miscarriage while they were out there as she finds herself bleeding. So that's another reason that they end up leaving the woods. But then things get really creepy there as they start to see things and not everything is as it seems. Now, this film actually, I enjoy some of the things that they're trying to do here. Famously, though, that this movie had a lot of issues that Berlinger had studio interference and there's actually supposedly was a director's cut that he had made and then the studio had other things reshot and then everything recut together. I would love to see this original one, but I highly doubt that we'll ever get there. But I do think that this film does some good things in some of the concept and ideas that they're playing with. The first thing is that there's a line that's stated is that film lies, which I thought was kind of a cool thing, and that plays into the movie later. And then we're really playing with perception being just really what we make of our own reality here. I think some of these things help to bridge the original film to this one as well to the third one that finally came out after the fact. I love that this movie has hidden messages in it. And then I also like that the movie kind of correlates back to the research that Steven and Tristan are doing in that is there something supernatural here or is it hysteria that these people are dealing with to make them do things that they normally wouldn't. I do think a lot of this is the acting here, which I know some people don't like. I actually think it's pretty good across the board, though. I think the best, though, is Donovan in the role that he's playing. He comes off as just wild and crazy, and I don't really think we need the scenes of him in a mental hospital as I feel like it's just a little bit overkill and really doesn't really add a whole lot to the story. I thought Skylar is solid in the role that she has. I'm not a fan of Steven, but I think that Turner plays the role very well. Learshin is nice because we get to see her nude. And then I think she's kind of fine as this annoying person who... She's almost like somebody who is a vegan or into CrossFit where all they want to talk about is that she is a witch and that she practices Wiccan. I think Director is pretty solid as well. And I really like kind of a low-key best character in the movie outside of Donovan would be 
Lanny Flattery's take on Sheriff Cravens. Now, there's not a lot of way of the effects of this movie. I do think that we get some CGI here that looks pretty good, and it kind of creeped me out at different times. The practical effects were good, and I think the cinematography was well done. I don't really have any complaints there. And I think a lot of that is that this movie does kind of take on that Berlinger is a documentary filmmaker, and it kind of takes on that feel. Um, and the last thing I kind of want to go over would be the soundtrack. It's not one, I know that the director wasn't a fan. I don't necessarily think it adds anything to the movie, but I do like some of the new metal movement that came out. So I do think some of that was pretty good. It's not really songs they sh play in this movie, really ones that I listen to, but it does tickle my nostalgia for the time that this came out from. They do some things very well with characters hearing something, and we're not necessarily sure if it's real or not. So that's really all I wanted to say about this movie. I think there's some good things here, but there's really just some missed opportunities that just make this fall short. So I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 on this movie after this last viewing. And then up next I have for you is May from 2002. This is written and directed by Lucky McKee. It stars Angela Bettis, Jeremy Sisto, and Anna Ferris. This is a comedy, drama, horror, thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a socially awkward veterinary assistant with a lazy eye and obsession with perfection, descends into depravity after developing a crush on a boy with perfect hands. Now, this is a movie that I remember seeing as, you know, one that I could rent, but for whatever reason, I never did. At that time, I wasn't entirely sure if it was horror, and the cover threw me off. It wasn't until I got into podcasts that I learned that this seemed to be a cult classic to genre fans. It went on my list of movies to see then, and then finally got around to it thanks to the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs as they go through the 2000s. Now, just to delve into this a little bit more, our main character is May Dove Kennedy, who is Bettis, as she is holding a hand over her eye, and it is bloody in the opening scene that we get. And then it takes us back to her as a child, where we learn that she has a lazy eye, so her mother makes her wear an eye patch. And she seems to be pretty vibrant and full of life until a kid asks at school if she's a pirate. So she starts to wear her hair over her eye to hide it like her mother was saying to do. And then May is given a doll that her mother made by the name of Susie, but she's not allowed to remove it from the case that it's in. We then jump to her in the present where she's working as a veterinary assistant. And she has to wear glasses or her eye will go cross. But she is getting contacts and she's trying to be a little bit more confident in herself now she has a crush on a guy named adam stubbs who she sees around her neighborhood but no matter what she tries to do to get his attention it is to no avail and then she also works with polly who is ferris at the veterinary clinic and she seems to be showing interest in her as well now may does get adam to notice her and they start to see each other but she goes a little bit too far with her weirdness and then things happen where polly as well takes an interest in her but then we see that they're not really on the same page and this finally makes may snap now that's where i want to leave my recap of the movie there's not a whole lot to the story this is more of a character study of this mentally unstable person of may and trying to make it into the world but she clearly doesn't have a didn't have a lot of friends growing up so she's stunned socially i really do feel bad for her because of that so she's kind of turned inward because of what happened to her as a child and we're just kind of seeing what the horrible effects can be from there it is interesting, though, is that with these lasting effects of not socializing as a child and what it can really do. Now, I've met and worked with people that were homeschooled, and they act a lot like May, not necessarily to the extreme of, you know, the depravity or the psychosis, but they're really lacking in that human interaction, you know, because they're not getting it throughout the years other than, you know, with their family. Now, that's not to say that all people who were homeschooled turned out this way. 
heck, I mean, I've met people that are similar to me that went to public school or even private school, so I'm not saying that's a direct correlation, but that's just kind of what I'm taking from this movie is that, you know, that lack of human interaction has stunted her socially. And what's also intriguing, though, is that Bettis is pretty attractive in her own way, but she does an amazing job at playing awkward, and her performance in this is amazing. But I also really should say is I can't really fault Adam or Polly here too much either. Adam does seem to give her a chance, even against how odd she is. It is really when May tries to take his interests and she pushes them too far. He isn't the greatest at breaking it off, though, cleanly, and I will fault him there because of that. He's trying to do it subtly, and she just is not picking up on it, but it feels like to her that he's leaving the door open. I do have to give the writer-director McKee here, as he slipped in his love for Dario Argento with this character as well, and that made me a big fan to see that. Other than that, we also have on the other side of this is Polly. She never told May that they were exclusive, and she is someone who likes to just fool around with someone she finds attractive. The problem is that May doesn't necessarily understand, and she's really just looking for love in a family. I did want to bring up that we get some cool imagery here of the glass of the case that Susie is in. We see in an adult that there's a crack in it, and I'm taking that that that's where she is mentally. The more that she loses it, the more the glass cracks until it finally breaks all together, much like her. I've already kind of said that I think the acting really drives this movie. Bettis is amazing, as I've already said. I thought that Sisto was really good at being the almost the adult version of his character in Clueless, you know, just minus the money. Ferris is also just so good at playing this dumb and ditzy character, so I can really see why she made her, you know, hay in the Scary Movie franchise. We also get appearances by James Duvall and Nicole Hiltz, as they have some pretty solid minor roles, and I'd say that everyone just plays as they needed. Next, I want to go to the effects, where I've seen some of McKee's other films before this, and I was prepared for this to be a little bit more brutal, and it doesn't go that far. That's not to say that the effects that we get aren't good. I think the blood looks real, and then what happens at the end really does look like all the people we're seeing together. And I have no issues there, or the cinematographies. I thought that was good as well. So this is just an interesting film. I do think that this is hard to recommend to people who aren't as deep into the genre, as this is really more of one, if you really want to see kind of more of a psychological thing where seeing the effects at May's childhood and what happened to her there with her mother as well as some of the other kids around her, I think that's really what this movie is about. But I mean, it does have some brutal things that we get to see here. I like the Argento references, and I thought the soundtrack fitted for what was needed, and I came with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And I did watch a couple more movies, but one of them is going to be featured on next week, and then the other one is going to be on an episode upcoming for SideQuest. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. see that article every year these liberal elites kidnap a bunch of normal folks like us and hunt us for sport the last i heard free speech still exists don't first amendment me it wasn't real Everybody get we were joking there's been a killing spree you got to come here right now you actually believed we were hunting human beings for sport. <laughs> but you are. We have an opportunity here to teach these people. These are not real people. They're actors. I'm playing an Arab refugee, but I identify as white. I think that's problematic too, in some way. You wanted it to be real, so you decided it was. 
kind of sick people would even think of something like that? White people. We're the worst. From our first review here is going to be The Hunt from 2020. This was directed by Craig Zobel. This is written by Nick Cuse and Damon Lindenhoff. This stars Betty Gilpin, Hilary Swank, and Ike Barinholtz. This is an action horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being 12 strangers wake up in a clearing. They don't know where they are or how they got there. They don't know why they've been chosen for a very specific purpose, the hunt. Now, just a little bit of backstory before I kind of get into this movie here. Is This was a film that I remember when I first heard about it and was pretty shocked that it got pulled. Now, there was some buzz about it, and I had an idea of where they were probably going to take the story. But to be honest, it seemed more like a marketing ploy to have it pulled and then reissued later to make it seem like they did cuts. But I don't really think I've ever heard of them doing anything like that. Now, it didn't work out as well as they were hoping since COVID happened, and it really only had like two weeks in the theater. And it was one that I didn't get a chance to go see there as it was quite busy and you know things got pretty hectic around that time and the buzz about this movie when it came to VOD was that the price tag to rent it was $20 and like I said I missed it in theaters and waited for it to drop to normal prices so Jamie and I could finally you know see it because I wasn't going to shell out that much money for it so I did end up you know paying six dollars to finally check it out and then just some more background information here is the director Craig Zobel this is his first foray into horror, but he did direct Compliance, which is a pretty horrific movie, if I'm going to be serious, of what you can happen if you are trusting somebody over the phone without being able to truly verify who they are and when, you know, they're not telling you the truth. And in the same vein, he also did Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, which is also a pretty haunting tale that I believe stars Elizabeth Olsen. And then we also have the writer here of Nick Cuse. This is also his first foray into horror, but he did produce the new TV show of The Watchmen, as well as he wrote two of the episodes there. Then we have Damon Lindenhoff, the other writer. He did write the screenplay for World War Z, which not everybody liked. I thought it was okay, and I've never read the book, so that could also kind of play into that there as well. But Lindenhoff is also known as a writer who did quite a few episodes of Lost, as well as a couple episodes of The Watchmen, it looks like. And then as for the cast, we have Betty Gilpin, who was also in this year's The Grudge, which I saw, and I don't think it's nearly as bad as everybody is claiming. I don't think it's great, but, you know, don't get me wrong, it could have been better, but not nearly as horrible as everybody's saying. I think it's just over average. Then we have Hilary Swank, which everybody knows as she was quite a big actress in, you know, kind of the mainstream there for a while, but she's actually bouncing out of the horror genre. Because she hasn't been in anything in horror since The Resident, which came out in 2011. But then she also has five other credits of The Reaping, which I liked. The Gift, which I saw, you know, just recently. Sometimes they come back again, which I remember when that came out and would watch it quite a bit on the movie channels. And then she also had an early role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. And then finally, we have Ike Barinholtz who is light in the genre, but he has been in The Shaft, which I think came out in the early 2010s, 2011, somewhere around there. And then he was also on an episode of Jordan Peele's hosted The Twilight Zone. He was in the episode Not All Men, which I haven't seen yet, but I do know that it is something I do plan on eventually getting around to watching that you know updated Twilight Zone. And then he's also been in some TV shows like The League, and he was also in Suicide Squad, as well as the comedy Neighbors. 
Now, for my recap of this movie, we start this off looking over someone's shoulder as they're part of a text message thread, which I'm going to say right now, I normally am not the biggest fan of these, so this would get on my nerves. What's interesting here is that I knew a bit about this movie and how it was twisting something that I've seen recently on social media, but I'll delve into that one when I get to my analysis of the film. What is important here is that the phone belongs to Athena. She's irate about something and states that we can't wait to go hunt at the manor. And then she's immediately told by other people in the thread that she shouldn't say that as there shouldn't be a text message thread about it. But we don't actually get to see Athena's face here and that'll come into play later. We're then shifting over to an airplane where Richard, who is Glenn Howerton, is giving the stewardess a hard time and we see he's got particular taste and that they're kind of expensive and they aren't necessarily getting met by you know the services that she is providing food wise as well as i believe beverage wise as well it all takes a turn though when a guy barges in and you can tell that he's been drugged as he's talking very slow and is very just confused about everything now there is a doctor on board who is portrayed by steve coulter and they try to get him to calm down but we end up seeing that this is somewhat of a ploy and it ends with who we are assuming is Athena stabbing him in the eye with her high heel shoe, which I kind of thought was a cool thing to do here is that it's really just setting the tone for this movie. And we get to see what really is going on in the you know this movie here. We have a bunch of people waking up in different little spots here. Like um, we have Yoga Pants, who is Emma Roberts. She wakes up in the woods, and then she looks over what seems to be like a little creek at Crystal, who is Betty Gilpin. Yoga Pants goes off, and she comes to a large field where she meets somebody who's referred to as Staten Island and that is Ike Barinholtz, as well as Don, who is Wayne Duvall, is amongst them. Now, there is a giant crate that is opened to reveal a bunch of weapons. Also inside is a pig wearing clothes, which escapes into the woods. So this is where it gets wild. People start to shoot at the ones that are in the clearing, and it becomes just pretty much a bloodbath. And then we follow Staten Island, Big Red, who is Kate Nolan, and Vanilla Nice, who is Sturgill Simpson, as they make their way to a small gas station. Things are as it seems, though, as the owners, Ma, who is Amy Madigan, and Pop, who is Reed Bierney, are kind of putting on a little bit of a facade here, and we get to see a little bit more here pretty quickly after that. Now, there's a much deeper plot going on here, and Crystal really just wants to get home. We really get to meet her for the first time when she arrives at the same gas station as the others. Later, we learn, though, that she has military training and is also quite observant. It becomes a fight for survival from these elites that are hunting them, but as I said, not everything is as it seems. Now, for my thoughts on the film, as that's where I want to leave my recap, it really is an interesting way to present this story here. I've been hearing for months of how great Gilpin was in this movie as Crystal, so I knew from the beginning that she was going to be our lead. What is interesting, though, is that I watched this with Jamie, and she had no idea about any of this, so she came in really blind outside of me giving her just a little bit of a, like a synopsis. And then I think she watched like a little bit of the trailer, which that doesn't necessarily give a whole lot away. Now, when certain characters that we are following die, I had to let her in on the movie that, you know, it hasn't really fully settled in yet, and we hadn't met our star, and that kind of confused her a little bit, but she did find that to be pretty effective, but she also thought this was a kind of a weird movie. I personally think this is an interesting way to kick things off here. Now what I do really like about this movie is I feel the satirical nature of this is intriguing. My initial thought was that we were going to have rich right-wing people hunting liberals. Because, you know, according to them, they're all the ones that have the guns and it's liberals are the ones that, you know, want to take it away from everybody. So I liked from the opening text message thread that this isn't going to be the case and they flip it on its head. The movie is playing with the idea of these, you know, quote, gate unquote conspiracies you know everything thanks to watergate now in this one they're dealing with something that they refer to as hashtag manorgate people online are running with it and that is the crux of the story 
What is even more interesting, though, is that the text messages in the beginning of it state that there is something called the manor and that they are actually hunting people. But then we get this interesting scene in the middle of everything that kind of is what I mean that it kind of messes with things. And I'm going to have a spoiler section here in a little bit to kind of delve a little bit more as I don't want to spoil this movie for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But this does play out, though, in the end with the idea of self-fulfilling prophecies. This movie is really, in my eyes, mocking like the social justice warriors cancel culture, toxic fandom, and how things on the internet can get out of hand very quickly. I mean, we're seeing things like some of the horror groups that were really trying to clean themselves up, but then we also have it where if you're being you know, too much on the political correct side that you can almost become militant and start to bully people, which is something that you were trying to you know, get away from in the beginning. That goes along with toxic fandom, but we're also seeing how even a little bit of information here can go a long way to being kind of a horrible thing with some of these conspiracy theories that we're seeing online right now. What is interesting, though, is that if you don't agree with them, then you become somebody who is in favor of the other side of it, which originally these were the people that wanted you to believe there was a gray area and not kind of what they're going into. But I'm not going to delve too much more into that because I don't want to do that, and I don't think most people here listening are here for that. It is funny, though, that the villains in this movie are those that think they're helping the country, and the crazy people are actually the sane ones in my eyes with how everything is being presented. Taking this even farther, it is wild that I just reread the novel Animal Farm. Now, while Jamie and I were watching this, I realized that Athena, who is Hilary Swank, states that someone can be their snowball. That was a reference that I heard, and then everything earlier clicked home for me. The pig's name is Orwell, after the author of the book. Some of the nicknames given to people are from the novel, and of course, you know, Snowball being one of them. What is funny is that the reference that is being used is wrong, which makes it a bit ironic, and I love that the character points this out, as she's supposed to be, you know, the unintelligent one. And then we also get a little bit different telling of the classic children's story of the tortoise and the hare as well. Now, I want to take this next to the acting, as I heard a lot of people bragging up Gilpin, and I have to agree. Her character is from Mississippi, which I think actually works well. There's a couple of reveals about her character, one of which I've referenced before that she has military training. Swank is also interesting as someone that I would despise online. I'd say aside from that, we really have some good side characters that serve their purpose around these two stars of Baronholtz, Duval, Ethan Sluppy, Roberts, Manigan, and Howerton. It is even more interesting that we don't really see our stars for some time. It is a technique that wouldn't always work, but it does here. And I even think going a little bit farther from this is that in a game where people are hunting people, you don't know who you can trust, and that is something they play very well with in this movie. Now, as for the effects, for the most part, I think they're good. This movie is more brutal than I was expecting, which was pleasant. There is some CGI that doesn't necessarily work for me, and this is most, you know, with blood splatters, so it doesn't ruin anything. The movie has practical effects in conjunction with this, so that, you know, makes me happy there. Aside from that, I'd say the cinematography is good in my opinion. And then some trivia for you, as I said earlier, this movie was originally ranked from its release date due to mass shootings, then rescheduled for March 13th, 2020, to then be affected drastically at the box office by the global COVID-19 pandemic. Due to the closure of theaters during the pandemic, Universal announces movie will be available to rent Friday the 20th of March 2020 with a 48-hour screening window for $20. This is merely one week after hitting theater screens after having to be pulled from its original release. This film was partly inspired by The Most Dangerous Game, the famous 1924 short story by Richard Conley, but with a satirical twist. Other films with a similar premise include The Most Dangerous Game from 32, Turkey Shoot from 1982, Hard Target from 93, Surviving the Game from 94, The Pest from 97, and The Eliminator from 2004. Now, I've only seen one of these, which is The Pest, but I did know that it was based on some of these things as well. 
The original title was actually supposed to be Red State vs. Blue State, but this was later denied by Universal, who stated it was never a working title any time during production. Shares many similarities with the Brazilian film Bacaru from 2019, which won the jury prize at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, which also nominated for the Palme d'Or and the Queer Palm. The classic music used in the opening scene is Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 6 in a minor. The military consultant Captain Dale, who is a technical advisor on movies, is a reference to Dale Dye, who is a technical advisor on many movies and who is also a captain, having retired from the United States Marine Corps. Several cultural character references throughout the movie. Crystal does a superb take on Aesop's fable, The Hare and the Tortoise, which I had said earlier, only she tells the story of the jackrabbit and the box turtle. The jackrabbit makes an appearance on screen as well later in the movie, which is kind of a fun thing there. And then kind of getting back to the George Orwell book of Animal Farm, one of the hunters on the plane calls the deplorable who woke up early uh, Squealer, which is a pig that actually is a mouthpiece for the other pigs in that book. I said the name of the pig is Orwell. There are jars of pickled pig's lips in Mom and Pop's store. When Mom reports that I got three of them, she uses the animal farm code names of Molly, Moses, and Mr. Wiper, which are all from the book. When the hunters are choosing their victims, Athena says that this certain character is Snowball. And then at the end of it, these characters argue about who should actually be labeled as Snowball. The hashtag Mannergate online conspiracy on which is the basis for the elites hunting down the undesirable individuals is similar to, and yet very different from, the hashtag Pizzagate online conspiracy where a pizza delivery service is used to cover up as a child sex trafficking ring linked individuals known to associate with Jeffrey Epstein and other persons in high society. This is in the first film where Ethan Sluppy has to run and try to catch a train. First time he has to do this is in the movie Unstoppable with Denzel Washington. And then it's obvious, it's actually kind of crazy is that Amy Madigan and Reed Birney, who are mom and pop, share the same birthday of September 11th. And the other ones are going to be spoilers, so I will get back to them in the spoiler section. Before I start that, though, I'm glad that I finally got around to seeing this movie. This was the last major in theater film that I didn't get a chance to see, you know, since this quarantine came down. It was bothering me, as I know a lot of people were speaking pretty highly of it. I think that this is a movie that does some really good stuff with social commentary and playing with it in a way that I can respect. Some of it is over the top, but I can forgive that with it being you know, a satire. The acting with the two leads was strong, with the rest in support of them. The effects were good for the most part, as was the cinematography. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, and I never got bored watching the movie. Not everything worked with it, and I do find some material to be a bit problematic, though. My rating here would be that this is a good movie, but not sure that I can go any higher than that. I also can't recommend it to everyone, as some people who are going to despise this, you know, with what the movie's doing. If you have a thick enough skin, though, I think this is a fun movie in general. I'm going to give you that my rating is an 8 out of 10 for this movie, and I think at the moment it's just outside of my top 10 for 2020. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to start that spoiler section now. So if you haven't, if you go on past this point here, you either have already seen this movie or you don't care about, you know, it being spoiled. So I'm going to start that here. Now, what I really like about this movie is that it's not your typical thing where you have these right wing people, like I was saying earlier, hunting down liberals. Because, you know, that would be the low hanging fruit. I actually like that we have some high profile liberals that have decided that they're going to hunt down people because of an online conspiracy theory stating that that is what they're doing. That's why I brought up the self-fulfilling prophecy is that when Athena is actually 
confronted about this. She's saying that it was a joke and that these people don't know what they're talking about. But what's interesting though is everybody that they start hunting down are people that are you know running with this conspiracy theory, and that is the reason that they've been selected here. But the interesting thing though is Crystal is the wrong Crystal. There's actually somebody else online who's not very intelligent, and that's actually the person that is writing online about all these things. And it's kind of interesting that if this crystal doesn't get selected, she doesn't survive everything like she does, and they probably end up killing off all of these liberals. Being for the fact here that you know, she has military training and everybody that she's really fighting against really just has a crash course where she has much more than that. But I think it's kind of cool here is that we have somebody who has a podcast who is you know, speaking out about these conspiracy theories. He's actually right about a lot of things, and that is Sluppy's character. So it's kind of funny to see that whole thing play out there. Another one of the people that are actually hunting other people is posing as a refugee and then he's trying to state that the other ones are actually real refugees and he's just an actor so it's kind of funny how that whole thing plays out there then we get to see some of these characters that at first we're on their side and we're with them but then we actually see that some of them are pretty horrible people like Staten Island is one of the people holding the tiki torches and you know the Carolinas where they had that whole march and everything like that so it's kind of fun that they take you know these characters and then they blur the lines about who's good and who's bad when really it's only the character of Crystal that is actually a good one and that really works for me I do think though that this goes a little bit too satirical at times where it's a bit over the top and then just some of the other trivia that I wanted to throw in here real quick is the final fight between Crystal and Athena was described by screenwriters Cuse and Lindenhoff as John Wick in a Nancy Myers movie. Now mounted on the wall of Athena's manor are 11 photographs of those in the hunt. Now a close-up that there's only nine of them in detail is Dead Sexy, Vanilla Nice, Target, Big Red, Staten Island, Yoga Pants, Gary for USA, and Justice for Y'all picture of Crystal and Big Game Shane. The two unseen photos are likely of Don and Bandana Man, and presumably the twelfth photo was Randy's as he was killed en route to Croatia. Now this movie has a body count of 22 where Randy, Yoga Pants, Bandana Man, Big Game Ken, Dead Sexy, Target, Big Red, Staten Island, Vanilla Nice, Ma Pop, Crisis Mike, Phonavoy, Gary, Richard, Martin, The Doctor, Peter, Liberty, Don, Sergeant Dale, Athena Stone, and if you count Orwell the Pig, that would make it 23. And the final fight was choreographed by five women. Heidi Moneymaker was the lead with the input from actresses Gilpin and Hilary Swank and, and their respective stunt doubles. So that's all I really want to dive into here. What I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my second featured review, which is going to be, you know, from 1960 for this journey through the aughts. Look out. Look out. Look out. Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Someone coming towards you who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences. A madman? Yes. Wait! Look! 
Anna Massey is the girl who falls victim to the charms of the lonely stranger upstairs. Switch it off, Mark! Mark, switch it off! Maxine Audley as the blind woman who senses the danger that threatens her and her daughter, but is helpless. Don't be frightened. Not frightened. Hot. So put that camera away! There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. My second featured review here is going to be Peeping Tom from 1960. This was directed by Michael Powell, and it came from the original story and screenplay by Leo Marks. This movie stars Carl Heinz Bohm, Moira Scherer, Anna Massey, Maxine Audley, Brenda Bruce, Miles Malson, Esmond Knight, Martin Miller, Michael Goodlife, Jack Watson, Shirley Ann Field, Pamela Green, and then this is a drama horror thriller from the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a young man murders women using a movie camera to film their dying expressions of terror. Now this is a movie that I heard about through podcasts and had an idea that, you know, is a proto slashers from everything that I heard and that it also came out the same year as Psycho, which intrigued me. This one, as I said, was from the United Kingdom, so it's kind of their counterpart to it, which is interesting that they came out in the same exact year. And then, of course, this is, you know, the reason I'm doing the journey through the aughts, you know, being paired up with The Hunt. Now, just a little bit of, uh, you know, background information here on some of the key players here. Now, this is the only horror film that director Michael Powell made, and I'll get into that a little bit later in some of the trivia. But he also produced and acted in this, both of them being uncredited. He was also an assistant director and was uncredited in another of The Magician from 1926 where he was an actor in that one. And then he did work with Alfred Hitchcock on Blackmail and The Max Man, which I have seen both of those as he was a co-writer on Blackmail when he was uncredited for that. And he was just other crew for, I believe for The Max Man, he did some still photography. Much like Powell, writer Leo Marks, this is his only horror credit, and he actually had a short career as well. Now, Carl Heinz Bohm was only in one other horror film, which was All Rain from 1952, and that was in his native country of Germany, which at the time was West Germany. Anna Massey had a long career until her death in 2011. Now, she appeared in 10 horror credits, which included Haunted from 1995, Gentlemen Don't Eat Poets from the same year, Vault of Horror and Peeping Tom being the first. And then the other ones were some horror television shows, it looks like, in the genre, like Strange, Chillers, and Dead of Night. I also saw her in the film Bunny Lake is Missing, which is an interesting little thriller. And she was also in Frenzy with Hitchcock. And, and she's also in The Machinist, which is, came out the same year that she passed away. And this is the only horror credit for Myra Cher as well. 
Now, to get into this movie, we start off with a bullseye with arrows being shot into it, and then shifts over to a point of view with someone coming up to a prostitute on the street. There's an agreement to go up, and she starts to undress. What is interesting here is that we're seeing this through a camera lens that has the crosshairs as well. So I thought that was kind of a cool duality here, and with everything how it plays out. And the woman starts to scream as she is attacked. The man who is doing the filming is Mark Lewis, who is Bohm. He keeps to himself and lives in an apartment building with a few others. He has a downstairs neighbor that are the Stevens. Now, the daughter is Helen, who is portrayed by Massey, and she's having a birthday party when Mark looks in through the window. I found this to be interesting as well as legit creepy that he is a, a peeping Tom here. He goes up to his room and Helen follows him up. Now, he is intrigued that she wants to learn more about him as they really don't interact a whole lot. He's quite shy and doesn't really know how to respond. Now, for a birthday gift, she wants him to show a movie that he is making as he does reveal to her that that's what he's doing. And we end up learning later on that he wants to do a documentary about fear. Before she came up, he was watching what he had just filmed with the prostitute. He almost puts that back on, but instead shows her a movie his father made. Now, he was a doctor that was researching fear in children, which the prime experiment was being done on his own son. While he shows her this pretty disturbing, you know, psychologically damaging footage, but it's interesting way to show us, you know, the audience, you know, a bit of his backstory, and I kind of dug that. And I should also point out here that the director of Powell plays the uncredited father here, and his own real son plays the boy in that, and his own wife plays the mother as well. Now, Mark turns out to be the person who owns this building as well. It belonged to his father, and as a way to pay for everything, he rents the rooms out. He also takes pictures of scantily clad women as a side job, and he does this above a store that ends up selling them. It is here that we get to meet Millie, who is portrayed by Pamela Green, and she's pretty brash, and we get to hear that she's engaged, but her fiancé caught her with her boyfriend. And then we also get to meet Lorraine, who is Susan Travers in an uncredited role. She is defigured, and this intrigues Mark as he can feel her pain through it. And she was told that she doesn't have to take pictures of her face because it can be hidden, but he pulls out his video camera and wants to film that because we get to see the hurt and pain that is there. So I do like getting to see, you know, that little bit of aspect there. Now, Mark's other job is on a movie set for a film. It is there that he takes a liking to Vivian, who is Sharer, and she's actually the stand-in for the actress in the movie that is working on it. The actress is actually Pauline Shields, portrayed by Shirley Anfield, and she's not very good at what she does, and the director gets very frustrated with her at different times. Now, Vivian has dreams of making it big and stays late with Mark since, you know, he reveals that he's making a movie of his own and he wants to, you know, film her for that. But it isn't a part that she actually wants, though, when she learned, you know, the true nature of it. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap of this movie and shift this over to the analysis. What is interesting about this movie is the character of Mark as well as the title to the film. There's a lot of voyeurism, as you should probably expect. Mark takes pictures of scantily clad women that men ogle over. And he also works on a movie set, which if you think about it, both of these are, you know, a type of voyeurism. And I mean, the second one is us literally watching a slice of events or someone's life. Mark peeps in the window at Helen's party. And this seems to be something that he's done in the past as well as somebody makes a comment about it. He is also capturing the moment of death of these women that he's killing. His murder weapon isn't the greatest. And I know that's one of the draws this movie was trying to use. It does work better, though, with the full reveal at the end. And I have to say, it is kind of creative when you start thinking about where the slasher genre would end up going, you know, after this movie and everything. 
It makes a lot of sense, though, through the backstory that we're given by the home movies. Mark's father would record much of his life for research purposes, and this includes the wake for his mother along with her burial. On top of this, he would actually wake his son up in the middle of the night with a bright light at the end of the camera and do things to scare him. The light that shines on his victims makes sense, and I wonder if he's using the same camera to capture these as his father did with him. The duality of Psycho here makes sense, except subbing, you know, the father instead of the mother, and Mark having, you know, that boy-next-door look. That's not where it ends, though. Helen is intrigued by Mark, and I think part of this is that when he's making it a challenge for her, that she, you know, wants to come after him and try to get to know him even more because he is resisting. She ends up deciding to write in a children's book with Mark as the inspiration. It will capture people with a magical camera, which, you know, kind of correlates to the events that we get here. I don't think she necessarily knows how far it does, though. Then going even farther, her mother, Maxine Audley, is also blind. I think that's about it when it comes to the aspects of the movie, you know, for story-wise that I kind of wanted to go over at this time. Now next I want to take this over to the acting. Bohm does a really well job at playing the lead here. Much like Anthony Perkins, he has that charm that about him that is disarming. The time this movie came out, you would ex wouldn't expect a person that looked like him to be a killer like they are. This isn't a spoiler as we learned extremely early on, you know, by the way, just so if you're wondering. Massey is also solid as that person that is trying to help Mark, and we see flashes of what maybe she can be. I really like the performance by Audley. She is bitter with the world for losing her sight, and I also think for losing her husband, and it's a tough, you know, for her, and she is a tough judge of character as well. Seeing her showdown with Mark was one of the better parts of the movie for me. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. Then the last thing I really wanted to go over would be the effects. I've already said my piece with the weapon that is used in the movie. Again though, I am forgiving when I see the full setup to everything and then it makes it a little bit more interesting. Seeing that Mark was scarred by what his father did to him and the lasting effects that it caused with him needing to film everything is intriguing to me. We really don't see a lot of blood and it really isn't that type of movie. There is some really good cinematography though and I will give credit there. Now before I every end everything here, I do want to go over some bits of trivia that I saw in here that I thought was interesting. The critical mauling and public outcry about this film resulted in it being pulled from British cinemas just after five days. In Mark Lewis's home videos, Professor A.N. Lewis is played by, as I said, the director Powell. Young Mark is played by Powell's real-life son, Columba Powell. And Mark's mother, seen lying lifeless in bed, is played by Columba's real-life mother, uh, Frankie Reedy. The scandal which the movie aroused destroyed the career of director Michael Powell. That probably explains why he doesn't have a whole lot of credits after this. And it's kind of a shame because this is a really well done movie. So I would like to see him do more. This is one of Martin Scorsese's favorite films. This film is regarded as one of the first slasher movies in horror movie history. Although it was not the first horror movie to use the convention of seeing things from the killer's point of view. The technique had already been done in The Lodger from 1944 and Hangover Square in 1945. Two films that both starred Laird Krager and were both directed by John Brom. Many critics at the time were offended by Powell's use of himself and his real-life son as Mark Lewis's father and the young Mark Lewis respectively. They thought Powell overly identified with the movie and that the use of his son bordered on an abuse. In interviews as an adult, Powell's son admitted that he finds these criticisms to be laughable. Premier voted this film as one of the 25 most dangerous movies. Screenwriter Leo Marx was a leading cryptographer for Britain during World War II. The phrase Peeping Tom comes from the boy who looked at Lady Godova while she rode naked on a horse through the village, even though all were warned not to look at her. Millie welcomes Mark with Look Who's Here, Cecil Beaton. In the first scene above the news agents, 
Sir Cecil Beaton, from, who lived from 1904 to 1980, was a noted English fashion and portrait photographer. The cameras in Mark Lewis's room include director Michael Powell's first film camera, a hand-operated IMO made by Bell and Howell, and he won a competition that is why he got the camera. Considered to be the first mainstream British movie to show female nudity, this is considered to be the British counterpart to Psycho. Though it was banned for many years and so it did not become a box office smash like Psycho, filmmakers that saw it when it opened cited it as being similarly influential, maybe more so. Although the set pieces are more artfully constructed in Psycho, the killer in P.P. Tom is much more tragic and sympathetic, a major innovation for film at the time. In his memoirs, Powell revealed his other candidates for the role of Vivian as being Joan Plowright, rejected as being too sympathetic, and a young Julie Andrews, rejected as being too famous. He eventually chose Sharer, despite initially describing her as too glamorous. There are actually two spellings and pronunciations for septophilia. Sopopophilia is preferred spelling and pronunciation, but the film uses the former. This was Cher's third collaboration with Powell after The Red Shoes in 48 and The Tales of Hoffman in 51. The character of Don Jarvis, the studio boss, is a parody of the notorious rank mogul John Davis. Cher replaced Natasha Perry. This was shot over a six-week period. Mark 16mm camera is a Bell & Hollow Filmo model 70DR. Mark's red scooter is a 1958 Dayton Albatross Deluxe. Early choices for the role of Mark were Dirk Beauregard and Lawrence Harvey. Included among the 1001 Films You Must See Before You Die, edited by Steven Schneider, and also included on Roger Ebert's Greatest Films list. The German accent of Mark Lewis is never explained. Mark's movie projector is a Bell & Howell model 173 Diplomat. The film is part of the Criterion Collection, Spine Number 58. Considered to be the first slasher movie ever made, Esmond Knight plays film director Arthur Baden. It's a tempting to infer an in-joke on the part of the production team alluring to their own director, Robert Baden-Powell. And this film was heavily cut by the BBFC before its release, and consequently many scenes have still a ragged feel to them. Some of the murders have been toned down, shots of nudity were deleted, including photos of nude girls in the album. There was something in the movie that was shortened. The scenes featuring the spike were also edited, and some dialogue was also cut, which explains the abrupt ending to the conversation between the policeman and the car. And although some cuts were restored in later video and DVD releases, much of the edited footage is now considered to be lost forever. So now with that said, I'm glad that I finally got around to seeing this movie. It is really interesting to come out the same year as Psycho, as it did have some parallels to the two stories for sure. I really like the concepts explored here with the variations of voyeurism and the scientific look at fear. The acting from the three stars in this movie, in my eyes, are good and really help to drive this, especially from Bohm. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't really need them. The soundtrack didn't really stand out aside from what we get some interesting use of screams with things that get revealed and then there's a, some music in it just didn't really necessarily stand out. I don't love this movie, but I really found it to be good. And I will warn you that this is from the United Kingdom and from the year 1960, so if that's an issue, I would avoid this. If not, this is an interesting film that can be, you know, a Kind of a solid little double feature with Psycho, and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. When he calls me kitten, kitten, soft and low, I say yes, yes, what is it? My love, he says nothing, 
I want to welcome you back one last time and thank you for coming on this journey with me here for episode number 42 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Now, just to close everything out, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. And I will just reiterate that if you send me an email, I will read whatever you you know send in that as long as you want me to read it on the air. But most definitely, I will do that. And then... If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, you can do that at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to follow me on Facebook, it is David Michigan Garrett Jr. 
Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, where I will post all of the reviews on there as well. And then on Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And I'm also made an Instagram page, actually converted another one over to being the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram page. So if you want to go ahead and follow that, that's another place where I will be sharing what reviews are up at this time as well. And then if you would like as well to get in on the conversation, you can download the Flick Chat app. And my join code there is Journey with a Cinephile. That is an app that you can get on iOS or Android. And then I will also ask if you could, if you could rate and review this podcast on whatever podcatching app you are using, just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you don't like or what I am doing that you do like, as well as, you know, get me just a little bit more exposure out there so I can, you know, build the listener fan base as well. Whatever you do, though, I do appreciate any of the help from anything that I've asked there as well. Now, for next episode, I've already watched Peninsula. That's the movie that I saw in theaters, and I'm going to go ahead and have that be one of the featured reviews on there. And what I think I'm going to do is that there wasn't any zombie films really until after you know Night of the Living Dead, so there's not any of them from 1960 that I could use. But what I think I'm going to end up doing is watching The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, That one did come out in 1960, so those will be the two featured reviews, and it's going to be a little bit busier of a week for me because I will be going out of town as two of my really good friends are getting married, so I will be, you know, partaking in that ceremony for that, but what I would like to do, though, is I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing so, and this is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off.